so California City was this town, is this town in the Mojave Desert. It's 100 miles north of Los Angeles. And they were wasting a lot of water. And I wanted to know why. Journalists don't always think about place when they're covering a story. But a location can sometimes be the heart of a story or explain why certain things are the way they are. Sometimes place is key to unraveling the bigger story you want to tell. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Emily Guerin is a senior reporter at KPCC, a public radio station serving greater Los Angeles. Emily is here to talk about a terrific new podcast she's producing with KPCC and LAS Studios. It's called California City. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you. So first of all, why don't you tell me a little about your journalist journey? How did you end up at KPCC? I moved to Los Angeles four years ago from North Dakota, actually. I'm not from North Dakota, but I was covering the oil field there. We're actually for Prairie Public Radio, which is the statewide TV and public radio station in North Dakota. Best public radio station name ever, Prairie Public Radio. And I was on a grant there with people in a few other states to cover energy and the environment. And before that, I was um, a writer for a magazine called High Country News, which is in western Colorado, and they cover environmental issues and natural resource issues in the West. I guess I've always been interested in those kinds of issues, including, you know, during my very first job right out of college, which was I was just a reporter for this free weekly newspaper in my college town, which was two small towns in Maine. And even there, I was interested in stories about the land and our relationship with the land and stories that had a strong sense of place. So it's something I've always been interested in, even though I didn't manage to actually get around to working in those issues until I moved out west. Okay. Well, before we talk about sort of the environmental aspect of it, I'm just curious is, you know, how was the transition for you coming from print into radio? I actually think radio works for my brain a lot better than print. I find that with print, it's so open-ended. I mean, you can paraphrase someone, you can quote someone, you can do a bunch of interviews and use none of them. It felt almost like there were too many options. And I've always been someone who I think thrives more when there's sort of limits and when there's forms to follow. And in radio, like you only can use what you have on tape and you're much more reliant on the things that people tell you. And it's much more about sort of getting people to have like real moments and real reactions on tape while you're recording. And then you kind of write around those moments. And for whatever reason, that just worked a lot better for my brain. So when I was, I guess, like I graduated during the recession. So I graduated in 2009 and there were like no jobs. And I was waitressing and doing this unpaid internship at a, a public radio show in Boston. And in that, I'd never really thought of radio before. Like it was literally like the only internship I could get. I mean, even from then, I was like, oh, this is really cool. Like, I think that it just sort of like worked for me. So even though I went back to print for a few years after that, I sort of always remembered that I had liked radio. And when I eventually got around to working in radio full time in North Dakota, so this was, I guess, six years ago now, I was like, okay, yes, this is my medium. And what's nice about the difference between print and audio, because I'm not a radio person, but I'm in podcasting and tell stories with audio. There just seems to be so much heavy, heavy lifting with print. You've really got to have everything in there and so much relies on grabbing the right quote. But with audio, I mean, you, you have that element of, you know, the person you're talking to and they bring their emotions to whatever they're talking about. And that is, you know, that's, you know, once you, once you cue into that, 
then it's kind of like, oh yeah, this is this is really kind of much more powerful and and you know much easier to connect with people. I find. I also think it's just something about hearing people's stories in their own voices that is very intimate in this way that print can't be just because it's it's on the page. So there's just something fundamentally different, I think, about having someone talking in your ear. Yeah. Well, probably because when people are reading, it's the interior voice. It's them saying all the right. quotes. So right. ha- having those other voices gives you an opportunity to actually connect with other people. So what is it that attracted you to sort of environmental reporting and environmental issues? Well, when I was younger, I don't know. I've always been a pretty outdoorsy person. My family, when I was growing up, we spent a lot of time in western Maine. I grew up outside of Boston, um, but we would always go to Maine and go hiking and um, just sort of spend time on this lake. And I think from a young age, I don't know, I just felt, I just really liked the outdoors. And when I was in high school and in college, I led wilderness trips and I went on a lot of long backpacking trips of my own. I was very into rock climbing. And so I think that covering the environment, it was just kind of like a way to combine these sort of hobbies and passions that I had with like my actual academic and intellectual interest in these issues, because I was really interested in like water issues and drought and air pollution and wildfires. And so it felt cool to me to sort of be able to go to these like mostly rural mostly rural places, you know, that are mostly public lands and be able to sort of like recreate there and also sort of engage with the issues intellectually. And I think some of my favorite writers, you know, like I love Wallace Stegner and some of the other writers who sort of like have these very sort of place-based narratives, mostly from the West. And I think I always sort of wanted to do work like them that was like very grounded in a strong sense of place. And so for a long time, environmental reporting was the way I thought that I would be able to do that. And then I think through this podcast, California City, I've discovered that, you know, you don't have to be reporting on climate change or drought to have a strong sense of place in a story. And you can be reporting on kind of anything and sort of ground it in the place and in sort of descriptions of the place and the mood of the place. And so I think that's sort of what I've arrived at after, you know, many years of covering like climate change policy. So is this your first podcast? I'm trying to think, is this my first podcast? This is the first podcast I've hosted. I've produced pieces for other podcasts that, come to think of it, I think they were all killed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they ever got to air. So yeah, this is. This is my first podcast. Well, it it doesn't necessarily seem like it. You know, I had the opportunity to listen to a a couple of episodes, and and it was really sort of enthralled by the story that you're telling. And as you you were sitting here sort of describing your your sort of attraction to, you know, places with your environmental reporting. I mean, California City, this is not, I'm not talking about the podcast. I'm talking about California City. The place appears to be a place that has a story to tell. Let's actually, let's, let's talk conceptually before we actually get into the podcast. What to Describe California City, the place. Sure. So first off, when you hear that name, it to me, it's like a very bold name. I mean, there's New York City and then there's California City, right? And so you're like, what? California City? It's just sort of intriguing, I think, the sort of the, the boldness of it. And when I moved to Los Angeles, I mean, I'd never heard of California City. 
I found out about it because I was assigned to cover the drought when I first moved here. It was 2016. The drought was still going strong. It was the worst drought in like 500 years. I mean, it was it was pretty epic for those of us in California who remember the water restrictions and like the drought shaming if you were watering your lawn. And so California City was this town, is this town in the Mojave Desert. It's 100 miles north of Los Angeles. And they were wasting a lot of water. And I wanted to know why. And so I went out there. And actually, let me stop. Do you want me to tell the story now? Or do you want me to just talk about the place? Because this is more the like how I find out about it. But can I also just like give you a different answer about we can go what there. is the place like? I, I want you to, to, to tell me what you want to tell me right now. Oh, perfect. Okay. So I'll just start that sentence again. Um, okay. So California City is this small town in the Mojave Desert. It's about 100 miles north of Los Angeles. And um, I'd never heard of it before, except that they were wasting a lot of water. And so I drove out there to figure out what exactly was going on. And it turned out that, well, first off, I had a lot of, I think, assumptions about why a city in the desert in California would be wasting water. And it turned out they were all wrong. I mean, I assumed like it would look like Palm Springs. You know, there would be resorts and golf courses and sort of retirees with mansions and green lawns. And like it it was none of those things. It was that California City was this master plan community conceived by this man named Nat Mendelssohn in the 50s to be a city for like half a million people way out here in the desert. And he developed tons of roads, hundreds of miles of roads. He laid water lines, he named streets, and sold land to tens of thousands of people all around the world, and very few of them ever came. And so it just had this feeling of being very desolate, but also like you could tell it wasn't supposed to be that way. Like something had gone wrong because there's these roads that lead to nowhere with these very bold names like Cadillac Drive or Da Vinci Place or Gold Rush Avenue. And it just seemed like they were put by there with someone with a, a very grand vision for the place. But the reason it was it was wasting so much water was that these water lines the developer had laid were now, you know, 60 years later, like unused because people didn't live there and rusting and breaking catastrophically. And they were just having these crazy like pipe ruptures. So from the beginning, it intrigued me as an environment story because it was sort of about like the folly of man and this like effort to, you know, develop the desert that went wrong and resulted in like a catastrophic amount of waste, which in a lot of ways is sort of the story of Southern California, but it was just sort of crystallized into this one particular place. So that's what intrigued me about it from the beginning was the sort of physical, the starkness of it, sort of the desolation, and just the sense that, you know, there's really something else was supposed to be here. And as a reporter, I'm always interested in the gap between what is actually happening and what is supposed to be happening. And in California City, it was very apparent that something else was supposed to have happened. And I wanted to know what went wrong. Okay, so we've got we've got a place, a very intriguing place, and probably stories to dig in into. So, you know, tell me about the reporting process. You know, okay, okay, I've got this place. It's really sort of fascinating. You know, how do you identify this is going to be the story I want to tell? Well, so at first it was it was a very simple story about water and like, why is this town in the desert wasting so much water? And the answer was that sort of simple answer I just explained that like, well, this guy had a vision and he built all these water lines and no one came and now they're breaking. But the thing that made it into more than like a four minute story that aired on NPR was that 
two things happened while I was there. I met this man who was a former police chief, and he's kind of the unofficial town historian. And he was telling me that a lot of people thought that this developer, Nat Mendelssohn, was actually kind of a con artist, and he'd been running this scam, and that he had no intention of actually building this city. And that was sort of well known. I mean, there'd been some reporting about that, both locally and some sort of like YouTubers had made videos about this. It was kind of big in the Atlas Obscura crowd, like the people that are really into like abandoned things. So he mentioned that to me, like A, maybe this place was sort of a fraud from the start. And B, he mentioned that he thought that there were still real estate developers there today selling the same dream and sort of making the same pitch that if you invested here or bought land here, you know, you could get in on the ground floor before this city boomed and you could be rich someday. And that just kind of seemed nuts to me because it felt so boostery, you know, it felt so like California gold rush times and sort of post World War II, like suburban boom. And I just had a really hard time believing that anyone with a straight face could still make that pitch today, especially in a place like California City that's so remote. And so I started looking into it and, you know, looking up the place with the, the current developer, which is it's a, a company called Silver Saddle Ranch and Club. And I just met all these people who had very similar stories about what had happened to them when I, when they went out there. And I started to think, okay, there's like really something here. And it's a lot more than a four-minute NPR story. It's either a big investigation or maybe it's a podcast. KPCC at the time didn't have a podcasting department, but they were hiring one. And so I waited until they hired a few podcast producers and then I pitched them this story. And so in the winter of... 2018, my podcast was like greenlit. It was approved. So at that point, it was almost two years since I'd first been to California City. And I started working on it in the spring of 2018. And I worked on it mostly, but not exclusively for like the next two years. So, you know, what, what I found really kind of intriguing, aside from the place and the episodes that I was listening to, was it was actually hearing the stories of the people who were being conned, many of them immigrants you know, sort of trying to buy into the American. And it's 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 such an American story. It's you talked about the boosters, but it's it's a California story, but it's also a very you know American story. That you know, we everybody wants a piece of the dream. What was your takeaway from the the people you were talking to? So what I noticed when I was talking to the people who'd invested with Silver Saddle, Silver Saddle is the company that was most recently kind of pitching this dream in California City. I noticed that they kind of fell into sort of very specific groups, like they were either Latino or Filipino or Chinese American. I really didn't talk to anyone else who wasn't from those like three groups. And I thought that that was sort of odd because, you know, if it's such a great investment, like why would you want to limit yourself to these sort of three groups of people? Granted, in California, it's extremely diverse. That's like millions of people, but still. So that stood out to me. And people's experiences of sort of being invited to Silver Saddle, like the sales pitch sort of used a lot of these like cultural ties. So you would refer your friends and your family and you would get a bonus for referring people. And then when you got there, you'd be paired with the salesperson who looked like you and who spoke your language and they would separate people by ethnicity. And they would take them on this tour around the ranch to see some model homes and up to the top of this hill called Galileo Hill. And you'd look out at the desert and your salesperson would tell you to imagine that there was a city here or a wind farm or 
like an aerospace engineering center. And they would say things like, well, I knew a woman who invested in Las Vegas and the land she bought became the Bellagio. You know, Las Vegas was a desert before it became Las Vegas, sort of implying that like this could be next. And a lot of the people I talked to just talked about how they felt like that the company was sort of preying on very specific types of people who for whom English might be a second language, or they had just moved to the United States recently, and they were really trying to invest in their future. And they use these very high pressure sales tactics to convince them to invest in this thing that they really barely understood. So this was when I was doing like pre research for the podcast, I heard that very similar story from I don't know, like half a dozen people. And I was just like, this is this is bizarre how similar these stories are like there has to be something here. And it turned out there was and you know, we can talk about when it, what ended up happening to Silver Saddle. But basically, it is true. You know, these these things that people were telling me are true. And they've now been corroborated by state investigators who are investigating Silver Saddle for fraud. We can talk about more. I just don't want you to give it away too much because we do want people to listen to this podcast. Well, she already tells us the end. Why do we need to listen? Oh, because there's so many twists. Oh, it's the it's the journey that's getting there. No, I, I can tell you, no, I was really kind of enwrapped with some of the stories in the episodes I listened to. And it's it's very much of an American story. It's, you know, people wanting and believing in something, you know, getting something that's going to take them to another place, but it turns out that it's actually people preying on them. So what what happened to the, that company? Silver Saddle Ranch? Yeah. So I'm wondering if I should tell you, because this is the subject of episode seven. Well, then let's not um. talk about it. Let's not talk about <laughs> okay. it. That's, that's, in the business, that's called a tease. Basically, I think all I should say is that when I started this project, like I knew that there was sort of like the glimmer of an investigation from regulatory agencies in the state, but it, it seemed very minor to me. And I, I didn't think they really got what was going on. And over the course of my work on this, it sort of became more apparent that there was something else happening that I didn't know about from the beginning. And that's what the subject of episode seven is. You cover a story. Sometimes you're like, am I here too early? Am I finding things out before anybody else has sort of seen it? Or, if you know, should I tell somebody? Well, the weird thing about this was that the 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 state investigators who were looking into Silver Saddle, like they used a lot of my reporting in their case. And that was just very meta. You know, I would like be reading some report they had put out. And in the footnotes, they'd be like, when we seized the hard drives from the corporate office, we found these interviews that this investigative reporter had done with the owners. And from those interviews, we learned X, Y, Z. And I was like, this is bizarre. Like, it's just bizarre to be reading a court document and like see yourself footnoted in it. So that was a new experience. But nobody's come to ask you for your tapes or anything. No, fortunately, I haven't been subpoenaed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, you never know if you could talk to the prosecutors, maybe about like filing charges when the, the first episode comes out, you know, who knows? I'm just saying that could be something big. So tell me about the experience of doing a podcast, which I guess, you know, this is your first podcast as a way to tell stories, as a way to sort of go more than just that four minute like story that you do for NPR. What has that experience been like for you? Well, I think it involves a totally different way of interviewing, of thinking about your characters, your sources, and also of writing and also of voicing. I mean, the whole thing is just very different from 
traditional public radio reporting, it's much more similar to writing a long-form magazine article, I would say, than it is to doing like a news story for an NPR station. So fortunately, I had some like incredibly brilliant producers. James Kim was my producer for a lot of the reporting phase of California City. And he's he had done a lot more podcasts than me and is just like very creative and artistic and also just knows the kinds of questions that you need to ask to get people to speak in stories, because that's the main difference is when you're doing when you're a newspaper reporter, which I was at the beginning of my career, like you kind of just mostly need information from people. When you're a radio reporter, you need their reactions. So you you as the reporter supply the information and then the cuts of tape are like the reaction to the information you've just supplied. But when you're doing interviews for a podcast, you really need people to talk in moments and in stories. And so you have to ask questions like, you know, tell me about the exact moment when you realized you'd made a big mistake by investing with this company. Like, where were you? What were you wearing? Do you remember what you thought? Like, what did you do immediately afterwards? Who did you talk to? You know, tell me about that whole 24 hours, like start to finish. And that's just not a question I really knew to ask. And so in the beginning, I found James fortunately came to all of our interviews. And like in the beginning, he would ask these questions at the end of the interview, and they would inevitably be the ones that I would use when I was writing the scripts. And like, eventually, I picked up on this, and I started asking these questions myself. But it wasn't obvious to me from the beginning that that was kind of how you had to approach the interviewing. So that was kind of the first thing. I think the other thing that is very different is when you're doing a radio story, typically you don't have very much time, both like literally you have four minutes, but also like you might only have like a, a couple weeks or a few days to like do the story. So you don't have time to like interview a dozen people and pick the best one or the one that most illustrates the point that you're trying to make. But in a podcast, it's almost like casting for a film. Like we interviewed, I don't know, like 25 different people that invested with Silver Saddle and people that had invested with the previous version of the company and had different criteria for like who would be best to be our sort of like main character. And so the person who's the subject of episode one, this uh, young man named Ben Perez, we picked him for like very specific reasons. And there were other people we could have gone with. But I mean, one of them was like just his willingness to talk to me for hours and hours and hours. And he was very sort of adamant that like, he had been wronged, and he wanted his money back. And he had this very single minded focus. And I think he thought that by participating in this podcast, that might be able to happen for him sooner. But there were other reasons why we selected him too that I won't get into because I don't want to reveal too much. But it's just different. You're sort of casting. And then I also think in the writing, I mean, you have to be so much more reflective. And at this point, my senior producer, Arwen Nix, was like really great for that because I would just sort of write the way I would write for NPR. And she would just be like, to NPRE. Like, you need reflection here. I need more specific details. I need more reflection. She has this term called moonlight, which is like the very specific details that really like let you picture a situation. So that would be like, you know, the exact species of sage that was growing outside this person's house, or like the precise color of her toenails, or like how many religious figurines were on a person's desk or how many times someone said this certain phrase in a call. So I would start like 
making these little notes like, oh, this one salesperson said, hey, listen, 58 times. And she really liked those moonlight details. And so I learned that this was a thing I had to pay attention to. I think the writer John McPhee does this really well. He's like so detail oriented. And I think that that just like gives your story, especially your radio story, like a much more visual presence than if you're just like, yeah, she had some religious stuff on her desk. If you can say like, there were three statues of Jesus, two Virgin of Guadalupe's, and one like baby in a manger. It's just like a lot more visual. Yeah. And it's funny because you're actually, podcasting is a storytelling medium. And the people who are going to be telling your stories are the people you're interviewing. And so by helping them set the stage by, you know, talking to them about, yeah, what were you wearing or what place you're going to be, you're putting their head in that place and you're make, turning them into storytellers. And then once you get to your narration, you're providing that other piece and filling in those details to continue to create that story. Yeah, it's very visual. And I think in that way, it's much more similar to like long form narrative magazine writing. Yeah, I never linked it to ma the magazine writing. But now that now that you say that, it, it just makes so much more sense because you're, you're doing something very different. Because I know whenever I've ever written something really long, it was always like, you know, if you're writing a news story, you know, get to the point right away, you know, get the hook, you know, get all the information out to people so they can get it quickly. But with with like long form, you, you just you get to take your time. You you can start with a hook, but then you don't go back to it for, for like two or three thousand words. The structure is much more important. And James and Arwen and I, we actually spent a month structuring the podcast. And then I started writing it. And then like four months later, I restructured it completely. So it was a very long process of writing it and editing it. And in a lot of ways, it was longer than the reporting process. So what was your favorite part of the podcast? When I ask that question, I'm meaning like, your favorite part of the finished product, but maybe actually there was something in the reporting that was your favorite part of, but heart of it. I don't know. Mm, I really enjoyed my time in California City. Producer James Kim and I rented a house there for two weeks, and we also made multiple other trips. And if you have the resources to, if you have the sort of privilege to be able to do this, to actually feel like you're getting to know a place when you're not from there. I mean, I just think that it's really hard to tell a truthful story without doing that. And I saw that happen a lot when I was a reporter in North Dakota because like there's not a lot of reporters in North Dakota. And so people would come in all the time from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And not always, but I often felt like they just sort of missed things or they, they read a lot more into certain things that like were shocking to them, but not to me as someone who lived there. And so it was important for James and I to like buy groceries at the Dollar General and get coffee at McDonald's because that was kind of the only place to get iced coffee on a hot day and go to this sort of one bar and like drink whatever beer they had and like do karaoke and talk to people. And so we just sort of really wanted to like not just be reporting on this sort of like mysterious real estate pitch, but also just like ask people about what it was like to live in California City. And so our first day there actually was election day in 2018. And we just spent the whole day like outside the polling stations asking people what brought them out to vote and what they cared about in California City and what the problems were and, you know, what they liked about it. And I just think those things, like very little of that made it into the podcast. There was one interview that is in like episode six, I think. But 
that was really important for my understanding of like what this place was and who are the people who lived here. And so I, yeah, I really liked my time reporting in California city. And then I also, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the writing. I mean, I think I always thought of myself as more of a reporter than a writer, but I think through doing this podcast, I realized how much I do like writing and how much going forward, I would like to not just be a reporter, but also be a writer. What's funny besides just the, you know, the sort of idea of storytelling and, and how you tell a story, the through line through all this is place. Because, you know, even the thing that you found most entertaining was actually being in that place and getting the vibe of that place to help you better tell that story of that place, which is, is kind of fascinating. Because then when you get into the whole process about how you interview people and how you're providing details, you're setting stages, you're, you're filling out the details, the visual details of a place. So it's all fascinating. But, you know, but that's all – it's so neat how all of that – those storytelling elements just work together. What advice would you give to somebody, to a journalist or a writer who, who's thinking about maybe maybe I should do a podcast? First of all, it's it's very hard. I think they're a lot harder than they look. The best podcasts, I think, seem like deceptively easy and like they just sort of, oh, it just happened that way. But there's, I mean, so much work behind the scenes in structuring the story, deciding what characters you want to use, what tape to use kind of how to establish the tone of the writing. I'm not saying every podcast has to be like this like beautiful literary product. I mean, those are the ones I happen to love the most. But I think if you are sort of attempting to do something that is sort of more literary or artistic, it's very difficult and don't expect it to be easy because it's not. <laughs> that being said, it's a great time to get into audio. I mean, especially as someone who used to work in newspapers, like I just think there's so many more opportunities in podcasting than there are in print, frankly, especially if you want full-time employment. And so there's a lot of places you can get audio training fairly quickly and, you know, at, I would say, not no expense, but it's not like going to graduate school. So there's places like the Salt Institute in Maine and the Transom Workshops and Union Docs is this sort of like training institute in New York. And so there's a lot of places where you can just sort of like get basic skills and then you can try doing things on your own or you can try to get work as like a lower level producer and you learn a lot in those jobs and then you can kind of become more senior. So I think, yeah, I just think it's a really exciting time to be doing audio and there's a lot of interest in it and increasingly it's becoming very um, Hollywood driven. So, and this surprised me when I started because, you know, in the beginning podcasting was like, really scrappy. It was like a lot of public radio journalists who were just like trying this new thing, very much trying to copy Radiolab and This American Life and sort of some of the early sort of like models. You know, and then Serial happened and everybody was like, oh my God, you can do like long form stories. You don't just have to have everything be self-contained in an hour. And I actually think that mimics very much what's happening on television where like streaming services, it's like you don't have to wrap up the narrative in every episode. Oh my God, you can have character development over a whole season. So like, I think that in some ways what's happening in TV and what's happening in podcasting are very similar. But just in the past few years, there's been so much more interest in like optioning podcasts and turning them into TV shows and movies. And there's a lot of TV shows that are based on podcasts now. And so it's weirdly lucrative. Like for people who are journalists and you're like, we just have a whole different sense of what we're worth <laughs> than Hollywood people do. 
And like, I guess that's the other thing is I would say is like, I was very naive when I started this. I had no idea I could ever produce anything that would be of value or of interest to people in Hollywood. And like, I can. And I think that if I had known then what I know now, I probably would have done some things differently. But if you're going into it, just know like, your intellectual property is very valuable to people in Hollywood. Like they want that and hang on to it if you can and fight for it because it's yours. And that's all you have at the end of the day are your ideas. And just know that they're worth something and don't let someone take it away from you. Yeah, the sky's the limit. <laughs> so have you have you assembled a cast list for your characters of your podcast for the movie adaptation? <laughs> I haven't gone that far, but I always thought it would actually be a better TV show than a podcast because the main character sorry the main sort of like historical character who is the creator of california city like he's dead i never got to talk to him i talked to his daughter and a lot of people that knew him but i just think if you could based on what i learned about him you could write a really fascinating character i think and i think that that in some ways would be almost more like truthful than just having these people talking about him um because you could really sort of inhabit him with the things you'd learned from other people. So I would be very interested to see a fictional, a fictional scripted version of California City because, I don't know, I think, I think it'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. Before anybody, you know, has to wait for that, they should check out the podcast. Now, when does that drop? So the trailer is available now. On July 13th, you can stream or download the first episode. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts, like Pocket Cast, Google, Spotify, whatever. And then it's coming out weekly after that. There's seven episodes currently, and I will potentially do a follow-up sort of based on what's going on with Silver Saddle right now. And also based on, like, people have already been emailing me being like, I know something about this. Or, you know, my mom invested here 25 years ago. And what happened to that? And so I think based on sort of, audience input i might do something else a follow-up afterwards well good luck with it it's a great podcast i think people should definitely check it out we'll make sure that you know when this when our podcast up we'll link to your podcast and where people can get it emily thanks for coming on the podcast yeah thank you you've been listening to it's all journalism a weekly podcast about the people who make the news you can find out more about us and download past episodes at it's all journalism.com while you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>